Well, we're going to begin a new sermon series today in uh, the book of Genesis. Before we do, I want to talk just a little bit about television. It's relevant. Um, You know, when you watch TV shows from the 50s and the 60s, it's really easy in those television shows to tell the difference between the heroes and the villains. Because the heroes, um, you know, in addition to, to being the obvious heroes that are doing, you know, saving the day and all that, they were also good guys. Right? They weren't bad guys. They were, they were good. They were morally good. Right? So the heroes, the ones who are doing heroic things, are also good. Uh, for example, the 1960s Batman Starring Adam West, you know, the one, bam, pow. You know, we, we call that Batman in color in our house. Because um, what it says in the opening titles, Batman in color. You think about that Batman, he's a hero, clearly. He's Batman. He's doing heroic things. He's saving the day, defeating the bad guys. Um, and he is also a good guy. He doesn't do bad things. He doesn't torture the villains to get answers. Um, he follows the rules. He works well with the police. You know, he's a good guy. Or think about um, another show from that period, Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith, he's the sheriff of Mayberry, so he's the hero of that story, right? But he's also a very good guy. He does good things, he acts right, he's a moral example worth imitating. And for a good stretch of time on television, uh, you could count on that, that heroes were also good guys. It's the same thing. Uh, But now that's not the case. Now you can be a hero without being a good guy. Um, More often than not today, our fictional heroes are flawed, often deeply flawed. So much so that there's a term for them that we call them anti-heroes. They are fulfilling the heroic role in the story. They're doing the heroic things. They're the protagonist. But at the same time, they're not good. They're anti-heroes. You can see this very clearly if you, if you follow the evolution of Batman throughout the ages. <laughs> now today, the Batman that we see is a reaction against the 1960s Batman, and he is, you know, he is deeply tortured, deeply flawed. He's, um, you know, he's, he's tortured by the death of his parents. He's mean to criminals. He's a loner. He's this dark, brooding character. He's become an antihero. Or you look at the shows that are on cable television now that are winning all the awards. Okay, this is not Andy Griffith anymore. <laughs> You look at shows like The Sopranos on HBO. Uh, the hero is Tony Soprano, a mob boss. You know, not a mob boss with a heart of gold, but just a mob boss. Or Mad Men on AMC. Now, the hero is Don Draper, and he's an advertising executive, which is you know, a mark against him. But beyond that, he's, he's lying. He's a, he's a cheater. Um, he cheats on his spouse all the time. He's an alcoholic. Okay, and this is the hero of the, sh- of the show. Or probably the worst is the show Breaking Bad, also on AMC, um, where the hero is Walter White, an ex-chemistry teacher who becomes a meth dealer, right? Now, he, 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 he's the hero, but he's this drug kingpin, right? So we have these anti-heroes. They're not good guys. They may be the main character in their story, and because of the way the story is structured, you may find yourself rooting for them. But they are not good guys. They are not heroes. They are anti-heroes. And today, I want to introduce you to another one. His name's Jacob. And you're not going to find a story on AMC or HBO. Uh, It's in Genesis, chapter 25. Uh, You see, the anti-hero is not a modern phenomenon. 
They've been around as long as there have been stories, even, even in the Bible. So I want you to grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis 25. Genesis is the first book, so just flip until you get to chapter 25. And we're going to look at the story of Jacob together. Uh, now as you flip there, I want you to brace yourself. This is a change of pace. Uh, we've just finished up a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we went through that and we kind of got in a rhythm with that, what that was like. Well, this is a different part of Scripture. This is a story. And so if the series on the Sermon on the Mount felt a little bit like sitting in an ethics class, uh, this is going to be more like watching an episode of television. Okay? We're going to look at this story episode by episode, and we're going to follow along the story of Jacob. So like a TV show, each episode is going to be self-contained. It's its own thing. But also, like any good long-form drama, they're all connected, and they're working together to tell a larger story. So, like your favorite TV show, you're not going to want to miss an episode. You're going to stay connected and follow along and, and follow the story from beginning to end so you can understand the whole thing. So open your Bibles to Genesis 25. We start in verse 19 with episode 1, The Birth of an Antihero. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if this is if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire to the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the episode that introduces us to Jacob. It's the guy we're going to follow around for the next couple of months. And there's two things that become abundantly clear about Jacob in this very first story. The first one is that he is the chosen one. The second one is he is not a good guy. Okay, this is Jacob in a nutshell. He's the chosen one, and he is not a good guy. Now, what do I mean when I, I say he's the chosen one? 
Look at the first couple verses in this passage. Uh, It's pretty clear from the opening shot that this story has a prequel. We're picking it up in the middle, right? You see, it just starts out, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac when Isaac was 40 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Okay? So what we've done here, we've picked up the story in the middle. It's already in progress, just like we we watched uh, Star Wars, A New Hope, last night as a family for the first time. Uh, and, and you know that the, the beginning of that, it's, it starts out and it says, episode four. And you can't say, well, what? Wait, I thought this was the first one. <laughs> episode four, okay, that implies that there's episodes one, two, and three before this. There's other stuff going on leading up to this. And it's the same sort of thing here in this passage. You, you begin reading, it talks about Isaac, Abraham, Rebecca. Who are these people? Okay, well, we're starting in Genesis 25. There's 24 other chapters before this that lay the groundwork for what's going on. So we need a brief understanding of Genesis before we can understand who this Jacob character is. See, at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, you get God creating the world. When God made the world, it was perfect, absolutely perfect. No problems whatsoever. It was wonderful. He created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they had a relationship with God. But then in chapter 3, you read about what we call the fall. The fall from perfection, where Satan enters the garden in the form of a snake, tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God. And they do. And because they disobey God, their relationship with God is broken. Perfection is shattered. Sin enters the world. Suffering enters the world. And they get kicked out of the garden. But in the midst of that, in Genesis 3.15... As God is cursing Satan for what he has done, he gives a promise of hope. And he says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, admittedly, this is kind of cryptic at the beginning. But what it does is it shows us that there's, gonna, there's this promise that one of the, the woman's offspring is going to go to war against the serpent. That Satan will be destroyed eventually through one of the offspring of the woman. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So there is someone coming who will defeat the serpent. Now, the rest of Genesis is the story of unfolding that promise. Who is this one that will defeat the serpent? You flip the page to Genesis 4, and you meet two sons, Cain and Abel. Which ones is it going to be? Well, Abel seems like the good candidate until Cain kills him. And so you come up to their next child, Seth. In chapter 5, you begin to trace the descendants of Seth, Adam and Eve's uh, third son, and you follow the descendants of Seth you know, from, from person to person to person to person until you get to Noah. And Noah, you wonder, is Noah going to be the one to defeat the serpent? His father thought so. That's why he named him Noah. Noah means rest. And his father said, we will call him rest because he will give us rest from the curse. And Noah's important. He delivers his family and all the animals from a worldwide flood in the ark. But he's not the savior of the world. He doesn't defeat the serpent. And so you keep following his descendants, his seed line. You trace it from Noah all the way down to a guy named Abraham. 
In Genesis 12, you meet Abraham. And God comes out of nowhere and says to Abraham, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. God shows up to Abraham, a descendant of Noah, descendant of Seth, descendant of Adam and Eve, and he says, you are the one, and through your family the whole world will be blessed. And in Genesis 12 through 24, you follow the story of Abraham. And the story of Abraham, in a nutshell, is waiting and waiting and waiting for God to make good on this promise. Until he's 100 years old, Abraham does not have his promised child. But when he's 100 and his wife is 90, God comes through with a miracle child, Isaac. And Isaac is born the bearer of this promise. And so the story focuses in on Isaac, and Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebekah. And now we're up to speed. In Genesis 25, Isaac and Rebekah are married. And they're going to have a child. At least that's the promise. They're going to have a child who's going to be the savior of the world, or you know, he's going to be the bearer of this promise that someone will defeat the serpent. They're going to have the chosen one. which really raises the stakes when you get to Genesis 25 and you read in verse 21, in verse 20, let's see, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, being barren is, is, is horrible. It, it's, a, it's a really big struggle, but this is more than just a personal issue for Isaac and Rebecca. This is a cosmic issue. Because God has chosen this line, this family, this couple to be the ones who have the child who leads to the one who delivers the world from sin and Satan. And so if they are barren, the promise is null and void. And so Isaac prays. He prays for his wife. And not just a couple days. You notice he prays for 20 years. and said that he marries her when he was 40 And over in verse 26, it says that the kids, when they were born, he's 60. So for 20 years, he's praying, God, be faithful to your promise. Be faithful to your promise. Where's the chosen one? Help. And she finally conceives. But then there's a wrinkle, right? This is not your standard pregnancy. She has twins. And they're not like good twins getting along in the womb. They're struggling. In verse 22, it says the children struggled within her. One commentator translates that as the twins smashed within her. This is a violent pregnancy. The twins are causing a ruckus, and she doesn't know what to do, so she cries out, you know, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? What's going on? And so she goes to ask of the Lord, what is happening? Because this is weird. And the Lord gives her this prophecy in verse 23. He says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She's having twins. This is new. This is a wrinkle. She's going to have a child that's the chosen one. 
that's going to bear this promise to bring blessing to the world. But she's got two kids. Which one is it going to be? Which child is going to be the chosen one? Now, you would think, if you had to guess, it would be the firstborn. Why would you think that? Well, you'd think that because that's how it works. In this culture, the firstborn is uh, just better than the other children. The firstborn gets a double share of the inheritance. The firstborn gets to be in charge of the family. The firstborn gets everything. And so you'd think, well, the firstborn child, they're the ones who are going to be the heir of the promise. But God says, nah, the older will serve the younger. The chosen one is the secondborn. And the secondborn we know is Jacob. Right? It says in verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Right? Even with twins, there's an older and a younger. Maybe just a second, maybe a minute, but there's one who comes out first and one who comes out second, and Jacob was second. And the promise was, the secondborn is the chosen one. So let's just pause here for a second and think about this. What do we know? Jacob is the chosen one. What kind of person based on that information alone, do you expect Jacob to be? Okay, Jacob's the chosen one, the chosen one of God to bring blessing to the world. What kind of person do you expect Jacob to be? Good, right? Decent, maybe even heroic? Doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to expect that. But Jacob, I'm afraid to announce, is not a hero. Jacob is an anti-hero. He's cast in the heroic role, but Jacob has incredible flaws. And we'll see those flaws come out more and more as we go along, but it's all right here in the opening scenes of his life. Jacob, although he's the chosen one, is not a good guy. He's not. That's right here in the first moments of their lives, um, ex-utero. Esau comes out first. And note how, he, how he's described. You know what it's saying in verse 25? He comes out first. He's red. His body is like a hairy cloak. So this guy is super hairy when he's born. And they call him Esau. This is a play on words. Um, you might even have a little footnote in your Bibles that, that, that says this, but the name Esau sounds like the word for hairy. So they see this kid come out. He's covered in hair. And they say, Esau. Apparently, Isaac and Rebecca didn't like buy the baby name book and spend a lot of time really going over, what should we call these kids? It's kind of like free association. You see him come out, um, Esau, right? So it'd be like for us in English, this works really well. Like if a kid comes out covered in hair, you would call him Harry, right? Okay, that's basically what they do. Like, ah, Harry, there we go. Okay, so then when Jacob comes out, what is he doing? He's holding on to his brother's heel. So they call him Jacob, because Jacob sounds like the word for heel, right? So we see this kid with a bunch of hair, say, it's Harry. <laughs> Another kid holding a heel, let's call him heel, right? This is what they do. They name the kids that. Um, now, in addition to being really uncreative, uh, calling Jacob heel is really unflattering, and it's also prophetic. 
this, this word, Jacob, um, literally means something like, you know, he who takes by the heel or he who grasps the heel. And this is an idiom for a bad person. Someone who grasps by the heel is a bad person. It's, it's like a person who uh, always wants to get ahead and is doing whatever they can to get there. They're, they're grasping after the heel. So you see this picture, really, of Jacob and Esau. Jacob's coming out first. Esau doesn't want him to come out first. Or Jacob, doesn't want Jacob wants to come out first. So Jacob's reaching out to Esau, and he's grabbing his heel, trying to pull him back so, that he, so he can get out first. Or you think of our image, our modern image, of climbing the corporate ladder. Yeah, you, could, you picture someone climbing the corporate ladder, and the person behind them grabbing their heel, trying to pull them down and pull yourself up. That's what it's like to, to be one who grabs the heel. That's what the idiom refers to. You'd call this kind of person a, a, a trickster or a hustler, a cheater, a go-getter, a climber. To be a heel grabber is to be an ambitious person with no moral compass who will stop at nothing to get ahead. And that's what they name him. It's very unflattering, but it's also prophetic because that's who Jacob is. That's who he is. He may be the chosen one, but he's also a lying, manipulative antihero. We see this come out even as they begin to interact as adults. As the boys grow up in verse 27, you see their interests diverge. It says, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Esau's this hunter. He, he goes out and he hunts wild animals. Jacob stays in the tents. Our tendency, as 21st century Americans, when we read this, is to import our categories onto this and say, oh, Esau is the manly man, and Jacob is the feminized mama's boy. Okay, that's not really the point that they're trying to draw out here. You know, because first of all, when it says that Jacob dwelled in tents, that's not emphasizing that he stays inside, like he's this pasty white kid who never goes and plays outside because he's always, you know, cooking or whatever. Okay, it, they're not emphasizing that he stays inside. He was a shepherd, okay? <laughs> Even dwelling on the tents is a shepherd. He's out there tending the sheep. To dwell among the tents means he lived with people. Tents is where they lived. This is their, their home. So it's like he's living in a neighborhood. He dwelled among the tents. He's fine with other people. He's civilized. He gets along with them. He can live in a community. Esau, on the other hand, is a wild man. He's out hunting game. He's always out in a way by himself because he's wild. He's uncivilized. He's untamed. Jacob is quiet. It says in verse 27, he's a quiet man. And that's it's a tough word to translate. It comes across differently in different translations. The basic meaning is that he's single-minded, that he's disciplined, He's got focus, so he's a civilized guy. He's focused. He's able to control himself to accomplish a goal. And that's not a bad thing by itself, except Jacob's goal is to get whatever Esau has. That's Jacob's goal. That's his mission in life, to take what his brother has. And in doing that, you know, he, he applies all of his focus, all of his discipline, all of his trickery to try to make that happen. He takes advantage of his undisciplined brother. This contrast here is of a wild man and a civilized man. 
an undisciplined guy who is a slave to his passions, and a disciplined guy who has control of his passions and uses them to get what he wants. That's Jacob and Esau. Now, this little scene in verse 29, we see Jacob exercising all of his powers to take advantage of all of Esau's weaknesses. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, what does that mean? This statement in verse 30 where Esau says, sometimes translators make things a little smoother than they really are. So we read this and Esau sounds like a pretty articulate guy. Let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. That's not what it's like in in the original language. It's much rougher. It's something more like, feed me some of this red stuff, this red stuff, because I'm starving. Okay, That repetition is in there. It's like he can't think of the word for stew. He's so hungry. He's like, give me red red stuff, mouth, feed me, hungry, you know, (laughs) red, red stuff. You know, Esau is just, he's so exhausted. He's so hungry and, and really unarticulate. He can't even express what he wants. He's just red stuff, feed me now. And Jacob, sensing Esau's opportunity, sensing the opportunity, demands from him, in verse 31, he says, sell me your birthright now. This is a first-class jerk move, right? Your brother comes in from the field hungry, and you say, I'll sell it to you. I'll sell it to you. One of the hallmarks of godly people is hospitality. Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was excellent at hospitality. There's one story in Genesis 18 where three strangers show up at Abraham's tent. No questions asked. Abraham goes, you know, has has somebody bake a cake. He kills a calf. He prepares a barbecue, feeds it to these guys, and demands nothing from them. That's what hospitality is. People need something, you just give it to them. Jacob, though, does a little price gouging. He sees his brother in need, and he says, well... I'll sell it to you. It reminds me of the story that's been in the news lately. You might have heard it. Of this, that there's a drug. It's a generic drug. costs about a dollar to make per pill. And it treats some sort of um, parasitic disease. Um, and another company, this guy, a former hedge fund manager who now is in charge of a specialty drug company, bought the rights to sell this drug. It's the only one of its kind. It used to sell for $13 a pill, so it costs a dollar a pill to make. Used to sell for $13 a pill. And this guy said, let's charge $750 a pill. Because it's the only one. People need it. they got to pay it. And the media's piled on this guy. They've called him a jerk, you know, and worse. And that's right. He is a jerk. That's exactly what Jacob is doing here. That's a Jacob move. My brother's in desperate need. Let me jack up the price and take advantage of him. So he says, sell me your birthright. The birthright is the advantages of being the firstborn. The birthright means that that you, as the firstborn, get a double share of the inheritance, that you could be the head of the family. When the father dies, then you're the one in charge. And in that society, that was a big deal. It also means in this particular family that he is the heir of the blessing. The firstborn is the one who gets the promises, the the promises from God to to be the the, the one who uh, gives birth or is the chosen one who saves the world. And Jacob says, that's what I want. I will sell you this lentil stew for that. And Esau somehow thinks that's a good idea. 
You'd think Esau would say no. Surely there's another tent next door he could go to and get a better deal. But he's a wild man. He's unruly. He can't control himself. He's hungry. He's got to eat. I need the red stuff. By the way, that's why they call him red. Isn't that how that often happens? You make some dumb move in your life. You say something wrong and it sticks with you for the rest of your life. So now his nickname is Red. That's what Edom means. It means red. So they just call him Edom. Jacob sees the opportunity. Esau says in verse 32, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? So Jacob says, swear to me. I'm not kidding. This is not a little brotherly ribbing. <laughs> swear to me. This is binding. And Esau does. So he gets the lentil stew. He gets the bread. He eats and drinks and walks away. Was Esau wrong to do this? Absolutely. The narrator points out. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. It was foolish for Esau to do this. He's dumb. He shouldn't have done it. He's a fool. But Jacob is a jerk. Right? Esau made a dumb move, but Jacob is the jerk who set it up. This is not how brothers treat brothers. This is not how good people, this is not how heroes treat people who are in need. This is classic anti-hero. And that's who Jacob is. That's who he is. He is the chosen one who carries God's blessing to the world, but he's also a bad guy. Do you feel that tension? Does that bother you? It's supposed to bother you. That's the tension that drives the entire story of Jacob. Jacob is a heel grasper. It is his name. It is his character. He is an ambitious person who will stop at nothing to get what he wants. And he is the chosen one of God to carry blessing to the world. There's a tension there. Wouldn't it feel nicer if Jacob was a good guy? And you think, oh, that makes sense. Jacob is a good man who does good things, and God has chosen him, therefore, to be a blessing to the world. That's not how it works. This tension has a name, and it's called grace. It's called grace. It's God showing love to people who don't deserve it. It's what this story is all about. It's about God's undeserved favor towards rotten scoundrels like Jacob and like you and like me. Because if you and I should see ourselves anywhere in this story, we should see ourselves in the character of Jacob. We are not heroes. I know we all like to think we're the heroes of our own story. <laughs> we are not heroes. We are anti-heroes. I'm really glad that my parents named me Daniel. What's a great name? It's not an honest name. It's not a prophetic name. Not like Jacob's parents. <laughs> they honestly and prophetically called him what he was. Aren't you glad your parents didn't honestly and prophetically call you what you are? I mean, if, if we had honest names, we'd be called things like um, she who lies to save face or he who runs away from conflict or the one who must always have things his way. Or she who hungers for approval. We're not heroes. 
were Jacob's. Not one of us deserves God's love. And yet we get it. See, this is what we have to remember as we go through the story of Jacob. There's only one hero. It's not Jacob. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. He's the ultimate Savior. That prophecy prophecy in Genesis 3.15 was ultimately about him. He's the descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the promised seed of the woman who finally defeated Satan. He's the Savior of the world. He's the hero. And he's the one who resolves the tension of grace. See, how how can this be? How can God love a, a person like Jacob? How could God love a person like me? It's because Jesus was the hero in our place. That's why. It's not because you're a hero. It's because Jesus is a hero. And he was a hero for you. We talk about firstborn. Jesus was the firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation. He has all the blessings, all the inheritance. Everything that exists is his. He didn't need to scheme and connive like Jacob did to get anything. It was all his. But he didn't hold on to it. Instead, he was the opposite of Jacob. He shared with us. All of his blessings as a firstborn, he opens his hands freely and says to us, you can partake too. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a human, even a servant, even dying on a cross for you and me. Because we're the villains. We're the bad guys in this story, and bad guys deserve to be punished. And our punishment is death. But Jesus, like a true hero, stepped in and died in our place. That's how God can be gracious to bad guys like you and me and Jacob. He doesn't love us because of what we've done. He loves us in spite of what we've done. He loves us because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus was the opposite of Jacob. Since Jesus gave up his rights, even his life, we can share in the inheritance of the firstborn. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be clothed with his righteousness. And God can show grace to bad guys like you and me. So as we go through the story of Jacob, really as you live your life, remember this. There is only one hero. It's not Jacob. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. Let's pray and worship him now. Father, thank you for the mirror that shows us who we are. Uh, Thank you for the honest reflection that we are bad guys. (laughs) But you are good. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the hero, the perfect hero. You gave up everything that you had so that we might get everything we don't deserve. I pray that we would worship you with all our hearts and that we would live in faith in you this week. In Jesus' name.